0: Tonight, we're starting a brand new series called Generous. And for the next three weeks or so, uh, we are going to explore the idea of generosity. And as we do, um, I want to I begin with an admission. I want to admit something to you. I am not uh, a very generous person. I would not consider myself a very generous person. Generosity is a struggle for me. It is difficult for me. It's not. It does not come naturally, and it does not come easily for me. And so tonight, as we talk about generosity, and I just want to kind of lay out the foundation for where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks, Uh, this is what you need to know at the very beginning, up front. Uh, I am not an expert practitioner who is going to explain how to do generosity tonight. I am a struggling sinner who, uh, like many of you, um, I am trying, struggling, fighting hard daily to be just a little bit more generous than I was yesterday. This is my life. Um, you can probably bring my mic down a bit. It's, it's pretty hot and I'm going to get probably a little louder uh, at a certain point. <laughs> Uh, I've been married for like 10 years. No, I haven't been married 10 years. I just totally blatantly lied to you. I've been married for almost five years, but my wife and I have been, we've been together for uh, over 10 years. So we started dating uh, a little over 10 years ago. And I don't know when this happened, but you know, when we first started dating, we did what people who date do. We would spend money on going out to eat, way more than we should have, right? Because what else is there to do? We would go eat together and watch movies. That's what we did. And uh, so we would go to these restaurants and eat together. And you know, when you're first dating, you don't know each other that, that well, and you're just trying to figure things out, and you're really cautious. And at a certain point, something happened the boundary that I would that I would argue is a necessary and uh, helpful boundary between the food I ordered and the food she ordered, that boundary began to go gray at a certain point in our relationship. Now here's what you need to know about the background of our lives. My wife is the oldest of four children. Growing up, she also had her grandparents living at home. And so she grew up in a house with three siblings, mom and dad, and then grandma and grandpa. And including her, there are like eight people in this big old house growing up. And so my wife learned to share. This was a natural part of who she was. It is a part of her story to share what she has. And so at dinner for them, their dinner was like an event, right? It was this massive table with tons of food, family style, and you just share. Everyone shares what they have that's my wife's story. My story, I am an only child no siblings. I grew up with uh, just my mother and she worked multiple jobs at a time to make ends meet. So she was never home. So my life, we had a tiny little dining table that was like a little square thing and there was barely enough space for two people to eat it was really made i think for one person to eat comfortably and this was my life i would wake up every day and i would have to think about care about be concerned about no one but myself right when i ate food it was all mine i would pull out all these plates and dishes and uh, open my fridge and my mom would make food and i would pile it on and it'd be like this is all this is all mine, right? I not have to share it with anybody, so this is my life. And so me, only child Jay, who grew up thinking about no one and nothing but himself gets into a relationship with Jenny who grew up with three siblings and two parents and two grandparents with tons of chaos and noise, sharing space and food and stuff, sharing everything about life. And we began to date. And soon enough, I don't remember when it happened, but she broke the boundary that is oh so important to me. It was one evening and we went to dinner and and she ordered her plate, her dish, and I ordered my dish, and we're eating and having fantastic conversation. And then without asking, she lifts her fork from her side of the table, and I see this ominous fork headed toward my dish. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, 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 wait. Stop, 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 Right? no, 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 no. And she just takes. She's just like, oh, it's really good. You want to try some of mine? I'm like, if I wanted to try some of yours, I would have freaking ordered yours. (laughs) Right? Just eat your food. Let me eat mine. I know. Some of you ladies are like, you suck. (laughs) Or whatever. I do. I do. And uh, up to this point, we have now been together, all total, over 10 years. And I just got to admit this to you. It is still difficult for me. She and I went out to dinner last night, and uh, we're driving to this restaurant in downtown San Jose that we really like, and I'm just, like, crazy about food. I don't know what's wrong with it. I'm just crazy about food, and so our conversation on the drive over is about what we're going to eat, right? I'm like, oh, what are you going to order? Oh, my gosh, so many options, right? I'm, like, (laughs) losing my mind because we're going to this restaurant, and she says to me, my wife says to me, well, I'm not, like, super hungry, so... And I, this is like, I don't know what is wrong with me, you guys. I'm just a weird person. She says to me, she goes, why don't you order this, like, combo plate, and I'll just order the side salad, and then we will... And then, like, before the words come out of her mouth, I'm just thinking to myself, don't say it, woman. Don't <laughs> say it. And she says, we will share. And I'm like, no, we will not. <laughs> you will order something, I will order something, and if you are too full to finish, don't worry, right, (laughs) is what, what I'm thinking, and so we get to the restaurant, and I kid you not, you guys, this is how manipulative I am. We walk in, and I'm like, hey, it looks pretty busy. Why don't you grab a table? I'll order for us, <laughs> right? So that she can't get up to the counter and say, like, oh, I'm just going to get the side salad. No, 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 that's not happening. So I made her grab a table, and I get up there, and I'm like, oh, I'll order, like, 17 combo plates. And I, like, order all this food, and we had all this leftover that we took home, and I ate it, again, today for lunch, and it was awesome. Um, <laughs> But this is who I am. I am not naturally a generous person. I have difficulty sharing, and I know that's just silly and funny and stupid and whatever else. But this is—I think—it uh, shows you, or it reveals to me first, and to all of you, um, something about myself. Something that's much deeper. That this whole thing about like not being able to share food, well, is is hard for me, right? And and that reveals something of my DNA. But what I have come to realize. And this is what um, this is just the the main point of tonight is that I'm wrong about myself. I'm wrong about myself. I am not intrinsically a selfish person. Uh, selfishness is not in my DNA. That's not who I am. This is what the world has taught us about ourselves—that we are human beings are intrinsically selfish. But I will argue otherwise tonight. There's this 19th century philosopher and economist named John Stuart Mill, and he described human beings as creatures that long to obtain the greatest amount of convenience and luxury with the smallest quantity of labor and physical self-denial. John Stuart Mill essentially said that human beings are by their very nature intrinsically self-centered, selfish creatures that are wanting to gain the most by doing the least. And this idea has heavily influenced our culture's understanding of what humanity actually is like. And I would argue tonight that John Stuart Mill was wrong. And so we're going to, just hang with me, we're going to trudge through for the first part of this talk, we're going to trudge through some technical stuff, okay? But it'll all get us to a place that I think we all need to get to in order to progress through this series and really ultimately to begin living with a generous perspective uh, and, and, and as generous people. And so, hang with me. We're going to begin uh, by just kind of looking at the word generous. First, a word about the word generous. The modern English word generous actually derives from the Latin word generosis, which means of noble birth. Of noble birth. The Latin stem, gener, is the. this isn't all that important, is the declensional stem of genus, meaning kin, clan, or race. It's all familial, right? It's all about like family. It's like what you're born into. Kin, clan, or race. And the root meaning of the word gen is actually to birth. To birth. This same root gives us words like genesis, gender, and genealogy. You see what is happening with the word generous, where it actually comes from. Most recorded English uses of the word generous up to and during the 16th century reflect an aristocratic sense of being of noble lineage or high birth. To be generous was literally a way of saying to, be, to belong or to be born into nobility. The idea of generosity, the very word generous, actually finds its roots not in an action, an external action we choose to do, but rather a reality into which we are born. The idea of generosity, though very word generous, comes from a place that really has very little, if anything, to do with some sort of external decision or choice we make out of some higher calling or morality. It, in fact, the word generous comes from a place that has nothing to do with choice, The word, the idea, was originally birthed out of that very idea, being birthed into a reality, a family identity, nobility, noble birth. This is where the concept of generosity and the word generous originally came from. And things began to change like 400 years ago. During the 17th century, the meaning and the use of the word began to change. Generosity came to increasingly to identify not literal family heritage, but a nobility of spirit thought to be associated with high birth that is with various admirable qualities that could now vary from person to person depending not on family history but on whether a person actually possessed the qualities and so about 400 years ago pretty recent in the kind of like the long linear uh, thread of human history um, about 400 years ago things began to change and the understanding of generosity began to shift where it was no longer just about the family you were born into, it was if you can exude the qualities that are normative for those born into nobility, the upper class, those who have generosity as a familial identity marker, if you can just act like them, do the external actions that they do, you too can can now be considered generous. And so we began to see the broadening. But ultimately, at its roots, in the beginning, when the concept or the idea of generosity came about in the English language, it was rooted not in a choice we make or some action we take. It was rooted in an identity. Now a bit about the science of generosity. Research, recent research, has shown that when giving generously parts of the midbrain are activated and they are the same parts that control cravings for food and for sex and so these really high-tech brain scans that have been done in research projects recently have shown That when you scan the brain as a person is acting generously, giving generously, the same exact parts of your midbrain that activate, that light up when you have this natural, intrinsic, human, uncontrollable craving for food or for sex, those same places in your brain light up. Uncontrolled. I mean, think about this, research is showing that just as natural as it is to the human body to say, I need food to survive, as natural as it is to the human body to say, I need sex, procreate, I need to continue on, it pleasure, all of those things, this is something that my body craves, longs for, needs. That same part of our brain is activated. It lights up when we give generously. It is as though we are hardwired to live as a generous people. Additionally, giving generously activates areas of the brain associated with processing unexpected rewards, which contain neurons that release the pleasure chemical dopamine. Dopamine. Remember in the 90s, anybody around in the 90s when the word dope was like really popular? Oh man, dope ride, dope car, dope kicks, dope overalls, right? Or whatever. Remember that? Some of you were laughing. You were there, right? Guest jean overalls. If you couldn't can, can afford them, you would buy the Oshkosh bagash, and unclip one so that no one could see the Oshkosh bagash. That was me. Um, right? That, that's where that word comes from. That's not true. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I just made that up. Um, I really want that to be why we said that. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> let's move on. But this pleasure chemical, dopamine, is activated. It, like sh- it fires off chemically uncontrolled when we give generously. In fact, researchers have equated the neurological response to giving generously with the neurological response to ingesting an addictive drug. So, give generously or crack cocaine, right? It's like, <laughs> this is what research is showing us. It's like, should I eat those brownies, to, you know, the special brownies, or should I give them to my neighbor? <laughs> right? It's like, same results, same, I just feel, I feel that high. Do I eat them myself? Or give them to him, right? It's like amazing. It's amazing either way. I'm not I'm not condoning drug use, by the way. This is just what research has shown us. Now, all of that points to this. Uh, and if you want to read more about this research, it's actually under the resources. The University of Notre Dame compiled all of this data in one place, and it's really helpful. But Dr. Jordan Grafman of the National Institutes for Health and Dr. Bill Harbaugh of the University of Oregon, um, who was crushed by Stanford on Saturday or Thursday, by the way, uh, as well as other leading researchers in the field, have concluded, here's the key for us tonight, based on their most, most recent research, that being generous, being generous, John Stuart Mill was wrong, being generous is inherently biologically rewarding for human beings these are the leading researchers in our day Now this isn't like 100%, right? This isn't foolproof every human on earth just needs to be generous and they're gonna feel great. That's not true. There are all sorts of variables and all sorts of circumstances, but what the big overview, the 30,000 foot view of what happens in our brains and uh, what we know about kind of how our minds work and the chemical reactions, the physiological reactions our bodies uh, have to giving generously, they point to this reality that we are actually not hardwired as selfish, self-centered creatures, but rather our bodies are created in such a way that deep in our DNA, deep in our core, and tonight I would argue deep in our souls, we are shaped as a generous people. Here's what the scriptures say about the DNA of our souls being generosity. Maybe, arguably, the most famous verse in all of the Scriptures, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That God so loved us that He gave to us before we even knew we needed it, He gave to us the most precious thing he could possibly give to us his son Romans 8:32 he god who did not spare his own son who was so generous that he wouldn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things This is the God we sing to. This is the God we approach in this room on Sundays. This is the God who has given to you and to me, to us, more than we could have ever imagined. Our God is a generous God. In the beginning of the human story, Genesis 1 and 2, we are told... That we, you and I, men and women, human beings, we are made in the image of this generous God. And so it is not surprising that the most recent research shows us that our bodies are in fact hardwired for generosity. That it is, in fact, generosity, just like where the Word was birthed, that generosity is not simply an external action or decision, although it is that. But it is also, at its core, a familial identifier, marker. It is our DNA. Generosity reminds us who our Father is. Generosity reminds us that we are not peasants on the margins, but that we are princes and kings in the kingdom of a God who sent his son that we might have new life. Generosity reminds us that we are sons and daughters of a kingdom whose name is generosity a kingdom whose king denied us nothing when we deserved nothing a king who sent his son the prince of peace to usher in that peace into our lives yours and mine and into the world by giving all of who he had who he was and what he had and so we are made in the image of a generous God. Generosity is in our DNA. And so it is no wonder that those who find the deepest fulfillment and satisfaction in life are those who live generously. So, how do we do this, practically speaking? What shift needs to take place? James chapter 1, verse 17. The writer reminds us of this truth. That every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The writer Brennan Manning says that while there is much we have earned, our degree and our salary, our home and garden, a Miller light, and a good night's sleep, All this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. May we remember that nothing we own is actually ours. May we remember That all of life is a gift. The very next breath we take is a gift. We did not earn it or create it or manufacture it. The next time your heart beats, which was right now, is a gift. There is not a thing you could do to control it. It is a gift of God the fact that we are here, that most of us can see, that most of us can hear, that most of us can get up out of this room and walk out the door and get in a car and drive where we want to, that we will wake up tomorrow and go to a job that pays us and a school that teaches us with friends who love us and a family that surrounds us and supports us. For those of us who have even a sliver of any of those things may we remember that it is all a gift and it is not ours God did not give it to you for you Pastor and theologian Tim Keller writes this, If you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are in the end of the gift of God. There is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods on this of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess, it is injustice. He has an entire book about this. And so if you're interested, again, it's in your resources section. Buy the book, read it. It will blow your mind. And I agree wholeheartedly with Keller here. If we take the things that God has given us as his good gifts and we use them for ourselves and ourselves alone, it is not just stinginess, it is injustice. And here is what we must remember. The currency of our Father's kingdom is not dollars and cents. It is not silver and gold. It is not square footage or the balance of your portfolio or retirement account. It is not your status or achievements. None of those things are the currency of God's kingdom. The currency of our Father's kingdom, of whom we bear his family mark, Whose DNA is embedded deeply in our souls. The currency of our Father's kingdom is hope and justice and grace and compassion and kindness and mercy and love, to name a few. And so here is what generosity really looks like it is not a call to give everything away and to live as a beggar on the side of the road. It is a call to take the gifts of this world that God has given you and to exchange them for the currency that matters in God's kingdom. If you have a job that gives you a paycheck that you earn because you have the ability to work then generosity means you take your dollars and cents, your silver and gold, and leverage it, exchange it for the currency that matters to bring hope to a hopeless world, to bring justice where there is injustice, to free the captives and the oppressed, to bring love to those who are unloved, to wrap your arms around those who exist alone in the margins. Generosity does not mean that we simply, and I would argue lazily, just give, all, give it all away and sit and say, well, here I am, God, living in poverty like you, like you wanted me to. Not once does God say, my call in, on your life is that you might live in poverty. No. Generosity is to take whatever we have, to pay attention to the unfolding story of our lives, and to constantly, consistently, daily, hourly, minute by minute ask the question God, what would you have me do? How might I take the gifts you have given me and exchange them for kingdom currency? Living generously holding loosely the things of earth and exchanging our dollars and cents for kingdom currency are the ways in which we best identify ourselves as citizens of God's kingdom. We must remember where all of what we have comes from. We must remember that it is not our own. The theologian Abraham Kuyper once wrote this, that sin's darkening lies in this, that we lost the gift of grasping the true context, the proper coherence, the systematic integration of all things. Now, we view everything only externally, not in its core and essence, each thing individually, but not in their mutual connection and in their origin from God. That connection, that coherence of things in their original connection with God can be sensed only in our spirit. We must reacquaint ourselves, both body and spirit, with the reality that all good things find their origin in God. Our money, time, talents, resources must be viewed through a spiritual lens because it is only by our spirit that we can understand the core essence of all things. When you go to bankofamerica.com, to check your balance. What would it look like to fight hard, to see God there? Like right there in the middle of your digital screen, on your phone or on your laptop, to see God covering the numbers that enslave us. To say all of this It belongs not to me. It belongs to God. It is all a gift. What might God say if we would open our our hearts and our minds to the connection between these realities of our lives, our paychecks, our time, our talents, our resources, and connect them to the reality that they all have their origin in God, that it all came from Him. Let me be very clear right now, because for some of you, this is your first time here, or maybe you don't go to church, and, and in some ways you might be hearing from me just a reiteration of what you knew the church, the Christian church, was all about. He just wants my money. He's just saying, look at see God in your bank account, and then know that it's not yours and give it all to us. Do not give it to us. And and here's what I would say. I don't care if you give a cent or all of it away. And here's what I would argue. God's primary concern is also not whether you give a penny or thousands away. This is not God's concern. There is a story in the New Testament where Jesus talks about two people who go into the temple. One is this really well-educated religious leader, and another is a, a woman on the margins Who is out an outcast in society she's a peasant and she's got very little and this religious leader goes in and he gives so much he talks about how much he's given i mean he gives financially exponentially more than this woman could ever give And he prays this beautiful, eloquent, elaborate prayer. God, I have given to you because I love you and I fear you and yada, yada, yada. And this poor peasant woman walks in in the corner, cowering because of embarrassment. And she gives literally the equivalent of pennies. And Jesus applauds the woman. He lifts her up. He elevates her and he says this. This is the sort of heart that God longs for. A humble admission that, God, we have very little to give, but the little I have is yours to do with as you please. That might look like not just money, your time, what would it look like, instead of just looking at your bank balance with God right at the center, what would it look like to look at your time with God at the center? When you open your iPhone and you pop open your calendar, what would it look like to see God there? God, what would you have me do? With all this stuff I've got to do and all these people I've got to meet and all these deadlines I've got to meet and all this stuff I've got to get done, what would you have me do? How might I exchange all of this into kingdom currency? Hope and justice and peace and mercy and grace and kindness, compassion and love. A number of years ago, like 11, 12 years ago, I, uh, some friends and I went on a mission trip to Kenya. And um, we were in a slum right outside of Nairobi. And on a Sunday morning, we went to this church service. And in Kenya, man, like they just, they're all about being together. And so the church service is like three hours long, and it was beautiful and amazing. And once we were done, the pastor and some of the elders of the church invited our team to the pastor's house to eat uh, dinner And he said to us, he said, yeah, some of our uh, church people have been at my house all day preparing this feast for you. And so we get to the house, and this is a slum right outside of Nairobi. This is one of the poorest parts of the world. They have very little. And we get to this house, and they have roasted a goat for us. And it is one of the only goats they had in town. This big, fat, juicy, delicious goat that was marinated with all this amazing stuff and they had been roasting it all day, preparing it for dinner. And being who we were, we were like, oh, this is too much, this is too generous, this is, oh man, thank you so much. We don't know, like our hearts are overwhelmed with their generosity. They've given us their very best And so we're digging into this goat, right? Because the whole trip we've just been eating really bad food. And so this is like the best meal by far that we've had on the trip. And we're digging into this goat and we're eating with our hands and everyone, like uh, our team and the pastor and the elders and all these neighborhood kids and all these families. And we're just having this feast and it's amazing, And we keep just gushing over and over. This is too generous. This is too generous. Why did you do this? You didn't have to do this. Like the only goat you had in town, you should have saved it for something. I mean, this is just too much. And then the pastor said something to us that I will never forget the rest of my life. He laughed with this big, powerful, bellowing laugh. And he said, what do you mean this is too generous? And so we explain, we're like, well, this is the only goat you had. This is crazy. Like, why would you cook it for us? You should have saved it for a a more special occasion. And he says to us, I went to seminary for four years, and in my entire four years, I never learned a lesson on generosity like this. He says to us, this is not generosity the way you're thinking of Generosity we're like, what do you mean? And then he changes the subject and he goes, do you think the goat tastes good? We're like, oh man, it tastes amazing. We love it. And he says, do you know what the secret ingredient to the goat is? And we're all like guessing, like, well, I don't know. Some sort of like special herb or spice here in Kenya? I don't know. What is it? We got to know so that we can take it back home and roast goat, because that's what I do on Sundays. I just roast, <laughs> I roast goats. And he says, no, 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 the secret ingredient is us. It is us. It's you here with us. You traveled from one side of the world to the other to be here with us. This is not generosity. This is not a sacrifice. This is us recognizing that we had a secret ingredient here for just a couple of days and we had to take advantage. We had to take advantage. The reason this feast is what it is, the reason it tastes the way it does, the reason we are all laughing and enjoying and celebrating is not because of any of the spices or herbs or whatever, the goat or any, it's, it's none of that. It's us. It is in recognizing and remembering and embracing the reality that life is sweetest that food tastes it's absolute best when it's not just me alone at my selfish table but when our doors are open and we take the good gifts that God has given us and we place them where they are they've always been designed and meant to be placed at the table of friendship and love and grace where all are welcome to feast in the goodness of a God who was generous enough to lay it all down for us. As we close, I want to read um, this quote from a French philosopher named Simone Simone de Beauvoir, and she once wrote this, this is what I consider true generosity, and I hope, I pray that this is who we become. You give your all, and yet you always feel as if it costs you nothing. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to live generously, to take these good gifts we have and to remember that they are not our own, that we do not own them, that they are gifts from God and that they have been given to us to steward well. But if we're going to get to that place, we have to begin here. We have to begin in this reality that life is sweetest, that food tastes the best, that drink tastes the best, that life truly is what God always intended it to be when and only when we recognize that the things we have are not our own and that you and I are placed on this good earth here and now at this time in human history that we might be agents of generosity. A generosity that could change a city in the world. And that our generosity exuded from our DNA, our souls shape as image bearers of a generous God. That it might usher in the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. That his kingdom would come. His will would be done on earth in San Jose, in your workplace, and in your schools, with your friends and with your family, as it is in heaven. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing our way out of here. Jesus, we, um, we admit to you that we have bought the lie. I have bought the lie that life is about me, And that I need to get, get, get. That I need to accumulate and to earn and to achieve, to store up for myself. But God, would you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to feel and to see and to hear? Would you open our minds to know and to understand that with our entire beings, we might embrace this reality that kingdom currency looks so different and that in our very bones we are shaped in such a way that selfishness and self-centeredness will never fulfill us because it is not who we are. Would you help us to embrace and live into and communicate with our actions the reality that our souls are shaped and marked by a DNA that is rich in generosity, that is selfless in giving, full of love and compassion and grace and mercy and kindness. Do that work in us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.